Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. And if you haven't listened to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, I want to implore you, yes, implore you to check it out. Because in every episode, we deal with very interesting topics that challenge all of us. But in More Mercy, we go deeper. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. It's $3 a month. I mean, this is like $10 less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So you can do this. I believe in you. Check it out. And with that, I want to get into the show. We've been conditioned to think that we're the heroes of the story. I don't know about you, but my whole life, I felt like I was the one who would save the day. And, you know, this is all great until I mess up, until I fail, until I'm shown by life that I am not the protagonist. In fact, I might be the antagonist or the antihero. Or even worse, maybe, just maybe, this movie is not about me at all and I'm the supporting actor. Chris put everything into making his film Electric Jesus. Five years. And when he first saw the edit, he was struck. It wasn't the movie he wanted it to be. He realized that he had written a story about the wrong protagonist and something needed to change. Chris White is a screenwriter and film director. He is the writer and director of Electric Jesus, which is a film about Christian metal in the 80s. And it has a way deeper meaning to that. But I love that he made a film about Christian heavy metal in the 80s. My inner child was just singing along to every Striper reference, and it was incredible. And so with that, Chris, welcome to the Mercy Cast. Man, Raleigh, this is, this is so cool to be on this. And I love the podcast, and I love the angle. And, and I hated you when you invited me to be on here, tell, you know, realizing I was going to have to talk about my failure. Isn't that the um, worst? It is. I it is. It. And I hate it so much. And I was joking with my wife, Emily. I was like, oh, it's so hard to think of a failure, you know, because I'm so perfect. And she goes, oh, well, you know, I can hit you up. What do you want? <laughs> you, you, like this you. week. I got This you. week. What do you want? <laughs> no, but it is. And, and uh, but the thing that sort of loomed large as we were talking is just, and, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking about what, like for me and my job and what I do, you know, what feels like the worst failure ever is when you try to make a thing and make it beautiful and awesome and all the things, and it just isn't. And it's terrifying. And in my line of work, it costs a lot of money to fail like that. <laughs> uh, not just reputation and, and your... Uh, I don't know, your, your personal self-worth takes a hit, but somehow with Electric Jesus, I think we pulled it out of the failure somehow. Um, maybe, I don't know, people may see it and disagree, but <laughs> we did manage to overcome it, but we overcame it. It took a lot of, I don't know, I think it took a, it's a major act of mercy and empathy and seeing it all over again that was very difficult and humbling. <laughs> Would you describe yourself or have you ever described yourself as a perfectionist, someone who has to have it right? Man, because I, I, I have I, been. I'm a recovering yeah. one now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I I don't ever feel like I am. I feel like I can go with the flow a lot of times, but then when I start to work, or you could probably ask my kids who are in their twenties now, like when I parent or 
you know, I think I am. I think I like my things to be a certain way, yeah. you know, and I don't, I don't like to think of it as being a perfectionist because it sounds all persnickety and annoying. And who wants to be one of those? That's I, right. I think, I think I am. I really do. I'm not a perfectionist when it comes to me messing up and me having plenty of forgiveness and excuses <laughs> for the ways I fail. Then I want everybody to forgive me and not hold me to a perfection standard. But in my life, that's really hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And I think a lot of us, whether we know it or not, we do struggle with perfectionism. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we don't strive to be excellent and all that. But right. I think at the end of the day, when you kind of fall on your face, how are you going to react? Do you feel like the world is over? Or are you able to say, okay, that happened? I don't love it, yeah. but I accept it. I don't love it. So how am I going to change it? You know, it's, I feel like that was your journey in this film. Like you saw it and you're like, hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, when, when you write a movie, when a screenwriter writes a movie, well, they say every movie you see that's made and produced or TV show is written three times. The first time is a screenwriter sitting down behind the computer or at the, the typewriter and they, they write their movie, right? And it's on yeah. the page and it's, and it's as awesome as you can possibly make it. And then you go to set and then it's rewritten. That doesn't mean everything's improvised, although sometimes it is and kind of made up and dialogue has changed, but actors become involved, designers become involved, camera people become involved. And so this film is written a second time. And then the third time the film is written is in the editing in post-production. That's when we take all the pieces we filmed and we take all of our good intentions from the page and the realities of the production, and they all come together and they sit there and that's what you have. And in my case, with my film, Electric Jesus, that first time that me and my editor, Scott Lansing, watched the film that was shot just like it was written, and there it was on the screen, and we watched it, I was just despondent. I was just, I, I, I wasn't crying. I was probably too angry. I was just, I was upset. This wasn't the movie I wanted to make. It wasn't working. The dramatic things that I wanted to happen weren't happening. The funny things I wanted to happen weren't landing. And, and Scott kind of knew that. But then also, you know, the shame, <laughs> the fear of calling my producing partner and wife, Emily. She's like, so how is it? How's the movie? And I'm like, it's terrible. It's not good. And I tell you, man, that was a awful moment. I still feel triggered thinking about it now. But then what followed was a deep dive into problem solving and also self-reflection and, and just thinking about, you know, what is this really about and how can this be something that I'm proud of? Well, and your movie is a picture of life, right? Because not only is it a picture of the life of a Christian listening to heavy metal, in the 80s, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which I felt at a very deep level. Yeah. I mean, I still, somewhere I have a tape of Stripers to Hell with the Devil. It's somewhere in my parents' yeah. house, somewhere. Oh, like, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it will live on forever. But <laughs> your, your experience making this film is like what we experience in everyday life. We have these ideals. We have these perfect scenarios that we want to happen. And when the ideal shatters, 
Mm-hmm. It's very easy to feel like, okay, I just went face to face with the law. The law just broke everything down. Oh, yeah. Life is not the way I want it to be. I don't know what to do. And we can have this moment of helplessness where we can lapse into shame and fear and anxiety. And all of those are very normal reactions. And what I love about your experience is you had that. You felt Mm -hmm. that. You called your wife and you're like, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just gonna be Homer Simpson backing into the shrubs at this moment. <laughs> you have Brian Bumgartner who plays mm-hmm. Kevin in The Office, and I think yeah. that's such an amazing casting job, especially for that role. Oh yeah, he the plays kinda the kind of shady, yeah, agent. Yeah, the band, the road manager for the band, and he's and and the key to his character too is I do think he's a true believer and I think he means well but he's so flawed and broken and messed up that you just see it coming a mile away this is going to end badly (laughs) and he was wonderful in the role it's very different than Kevin on The Office his performance he has a lot of range as an actor and we explore that in the movie for sure and the beautiful thing I think about the movie is sometimes you watch a film and I have to have this conversation every time a new film comes out about human trafficking because people will be like, was it a good movie? Was it great? Uh, Is this the best one? And regardless of what political bend the movie (laughs) takes, generally there's a truth. The good people are too good and the bad guys are too bad and they're too black and white and there's no gray. What I loved about Electric Jesus is literally every character has shades of gray. There are Mm-hmm. There are shadows following every character. They have their yeah. good moments. But even in like the most virtuous character, you see the shadow of legalism, the shadow of shame. Oh, yeah. yeah. Every one of the characters is complicated. And you don't see that in every film. And I think that's what connects it to people who even maybe didn't grow up in the 80s. They can watch this film and be like, wow, that's, that's me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had somebody, I think it was Sirius Satellite Radio. When the film came out, I was interviewed on some 80s metal show, satellite radio show. And the, the host, she said, I didn't know about this Christian rock thing. And no, and the band in the movie, they're, they're, they're called 316. And she said, so where did the name come from, 316? And I was like, oh, you know, like John 316. And she's like, I, I what, don't know what that? you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, no, no, in the Bible and the... It's kind of the whole point of Christianity, you know, like she had no operational knowledge. She was a grown adult person, like probably in her forties and she had never heard. And, and so again, she loved the movie and she really dug the soundtrack and, you know, just thought the songs were great and all that. But I I just thought it's so weird. It's like, yeah, all kinds are responding to this. Not that I meant for the film to be a, a faith-based or Christian movie at all, but it is about Christians and that part didn't turn her off at all. You know, that she was, she was fine and kind of delighted to learn about it, you know, in a weird way. So, and it's interesting because she's, what she's watching is a critique of Christian mm-hmm. subculture in the eighties. Well, yeah, yeah. Made totally. by a Christian, which I thought was <laughs> beautiful because you didn't hold anything back. And I think that example that you just gave proves the point of the movie 
We mm. all tend to assume a certain level of knowledge that everyone knows John 3.16. I mean, mm-hmm, it's in mm-hmm. every sporting event, wrestling event. Yeah, that's right. Because I refuse that's to right. call. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if wrestling is an official sport. I'm not going to say it's <laughs> fake. Because, I mean, people uh, are getting thrown around. And I, yeah, I, I don't true. want the hate mail for that. But, <laughs> but like, until it... Well, I was about to say until it gets into the Olympics, but I mean, yeah, it sort of is. Anyway, Look, uh, Chris, Chris Jericho, Chris Jericho is a big fan of Electric Jesus and Striper. So I defend wrestling to the end, Mr. Jericho, on your behalf. <laughs> well, he's kind of a legend, too. The Lion King he is, is one of he the is greatest a- moves of all time. And so, I mean. <laughs> Truth. Yes. But I think at the end of the day, regardless, you see it seeping into culture, but we cannot assume that everyone knows. And I think I think some of that, something that helps that happen and goes to what you're saying about every character is kind of flawed in the movie. And I'm a Christian making it and it is a critique. I, I love the characters. I love them. Every character in the movie I love some of them are me and my friends when we were in high school, very devout evangelical Christian kids. Some of them are the adults that were in my life and have been in my life. I, I just, I love the people. I, even in the scene at the end, (laughs) in the Purgatorio bar where they go play a secular club and, and just get devoured by the, I love the people in that audience too. You know, I think that's something as a dramatist and as a writer. I have to decide that I love the characters, which is awesome practice for life. And it's, let me also say, it's way easier to love fictitious characters you're writing than it is to love, you know, your family and friends and strangers you encounter in your life. But that is a practice of, I think, making art that resonates in a, in a meaningful way with people. I want to dive deeper into making art, but I want to kind of segue into that by, like, you had this experience, you wrote the movie, and it was wrong. It wasn't what you wanted it to be, and Mm -hmm. you were shaken. You were shooketh. You were- I was shook. You were at this point where you're like, oh, no, what do I do? Uh You were honest about it. But what happens when your art, your creation, rebukes you? Tell me a little bit. That's a good word. I like that. And I think in this case, the art did, using your word that I like a lot, rebuke me. It wasn't a disaster like I was seeing. I just hadn't fully seen what I'd written. And Raleigh, or just so everybody knows, the film is a typical, is kind of a coming of age rock and roll band story. And the band's going along on their mission. And then the, they meet a girl and she runs off with the band and it's kind of an upheaval moment. And so that kind of follows that rock and roll movie yeah. where the girl's kind of a muse. She's an artistic muse and the main character falls in love with her. We've, we've seen that movie before. And that's really the template I put on Electric Jesus. What happened and what came out of the art, and I think it was always there, but I couldn't see it. I'm the director. I should be able to see this. I wrote it. I should be able to see this, but I didn't see it until. The movie wasn't working and I was trying to watch it and figure it out. And I realized, oh, the protagonist, the main character, the character on whom all the action turns, this character, Eric, he's the sound guy for the band. He's not the protagonist in this story. 
It's that girl. She's the protagonist in the story. She shows up about 15 minutes into the movie, hops along on the ride for the band, and exits right before the end of the movie. And then there's a finale scene that we won't go into. It's kind of a spoiler if we went into that. She's a part of that scene too. And also my editor, Scott Lansing, he he and I kind of figured this out together, I think. But when we realized that this story is really about her and that in the structure of the movie, we could start it like, hey, this is Eric's story about the summer he ran off with a band and he's narrating the story and here we go. And then about halfway through when she just takes over the story Mm. and then she's driving it, that's when the movie really starts to sing, pardon the pun. I mean, that's where it really takes off. And then to have that narrator voice, the guy who's remembering the summer of 1986, when he realizes he has the epiphany, this wasn't about me, it was about her. That's what makes the film, I think, I think that's the film's real value. It's very entertaining and funny and the music's great and all that, but I think it has power in that, that discovery. I'm, I'm most proud of about the film is that it does that. But that was me. I had to learn that. And that was after the film's in the can and we're sitting there trying to make sense of it. Yeah, it's like your self-awareness bled into the film because I feel like the film is yeah, very yeah. self-aware and the lead character, which you talk about this almost line of demarcation where it shifts, like this sudden yeah, shift yeah. of, mm-hmm. oh, I thought it was about the sound guy. Now mm-hmm, it's about the girl because mm-hmm. I noticed that in the film. I was yeah, like, wait, yeah. wait. And, and mm-hmm. then just, there was, of course, a playfulness. There were flickers of almost famous in it. It will at least oh, reminded sure. yeah. me of Almost Famous mm-hmm, in some mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. But it was more realistic for me. It was more germane to my experience because I was sure. like, man, I, I had those albums. I didn't have the hair, but I had those albums. <laughs> and I was, I was into it. And then there's a scene where the sound guy, who I think was still the main character at that point. Yeah, this, I, yeah. He talks about his influences. And he's kind of interviewing with the band. And I was like, that was me. I knew every random Christian metal, pop and punk band out there. It's a funny scene because they ask him, he's auditioning to be the sound man for this Christian rock band. And they say, you know, what bands do you listen to? And he, without almost taking a breath, he rattles off 66 bands, which Raleigh, that's one for every book of the Bible, just so you know. I really like Um, that. He, he just goes, 66 bands. Well, I like this band, this band, oh, but I also like this. And they're just kind of looking at him like, who is this freak? <laughs> it's a great scene. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. actor d- does it so well. Andrew Eckle plays Eric, and he's just so great in it. And so what I've noticed with art is that sometimes we just have to get it out. And mm. you get it out, you rewrite it three times. And mm-hmm. you learn about yourself as you're learning about the film. And then the film is telling you about yourself in a sense. It's reflecting to you the truth, which I think is amazing. This idea of art basically saying, no, nah, we need to go this way. But yeah, but why this medium for you? So again, I'm, I'm 53. I came up in the 80s. I, I, like a lot of us, people in my friend group had uh, video cameras. And so we would, and you know, when you're, 12, 13, 14 year old boy, 
at least we were, we're, we're all into comedy, you know, we're into goofiness and skits and silliness and funny movies and all that kind of stuff. So we would just, you know, we would film things like that. And I had a personality, I was kind of a ringleader kind of guy, you know, I'm a film director now, so it's that kind of guy. But when you're like with your friends and you want to make funny stuff, it just became my language. You know, I'm a pretty verbal person. Like I'm, I'm good at, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong writer and expressing my ideas, but also I was into, I love taking pictures. I was into still photography and then also in theater, like theater became a passion for me in high school and college. So when you combine the theater with the pictures and the writing, it was just film and television, you know, kind of became my language. I do kind of take the controversial point that it's the best art form because it combines every element of every art form. Everything is in film and television. Maybe it lacks some of the primacy of like seeing a play live or, you know, there, and live music is so hard to emulate the, the, the feelings when you see uh, a band or a symphony live. But in my skill set, it just lent itself to that collaboration. Everything about film is just, uh, and it has phases, like film has a phase where you're writing the film by yourself, and then you're raising money to make the film, and that's kind of businessy stuff. And then there's the making the film, which is like going away to summer camp with a bunch of cool artsy friends. And then there's the post-production where you're in a tiny room again, the seasons of film fit me too. I just love those seasons that go with it. So it, I think it found me more than I found it, but it, it, it has been a very rewarding career path and not one that I just jumped into. I didn't go to school and learn how to be a filmmaker. I, like many people, had a very circuitous journey to where I am that involved marketing, advertising, teaching, theater making. There were a lot of steps to get to here. But I've, I've really found my footing here and have a great partner to work with, my wife, Emily. So it's a good place to be. When I resonate with that, because I will tell people, you know, I've, I've written a couple of books, but I'm not a technical writer. I didn't go to school for it. And I just had mm -hmm. a burden. I had a passion. I had, I once said when I was in seminary, I was sitting next to all these guys who would later write books and they were starting to put stuff out. And I think mm -hmm. I was just too punk rock for it. And so I was like, you know what? I'm never going to write a book. I actually would tell people that. Like, they didn't even need to know. They were talking about, like, toaster strudels or something. And I'm like, I'm not going to write a book. Like, like, they even asked for me to say that. But I really prided myself on what I didn't do. I might have been in seminary, but I was still punk rock. And I was going to keep it underground. I was going to do all that. But then all of a sudden, I had something to say. And that's... Mm. I feel like that comes out in your movie is you really have something to say and you're addressing the human condition. I think just like mm -hmm. you mentioned, you're interviewing this person who doesn't know about John 316, you know, his core Christian scripture, but this person connected with the film mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. hits us at such a deep level. It's kind of a coming of age film, but it's a like figuring out who are you going to be? What mm -hmm. choices are you going to make? And really what's important, because I think what comes out in your film is there are a lot of standards that are put on us as people of faith, especially when we're young, and then we mm -hmm. just start repeating it. There's a line mm. that's repeated consistently in the film by the protagonist, by both protagonists in a sense, but it's, I've got to make Jesus famous. 
I've got to make yeah. Jesus famous. And this convicted me when I was watching it because I was looking at this character and I was like, that was me. I was the mm-hmm. guy who got rid of all of my secular CDs because I thought in terms of Christian and secular and anything that was secular, I couldn't see God's truth in it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just saw it as bad. So I remember taking all of my CDs to this place called the Record Hut and I, I mm-hmm. sold them for pennies on a dollar to mm-hmm. the guy mm-hmm. and I had good stuff. I mean, there was <laughs> no more. There was all sorts right. of stuff in there right? and it was gone. <laughs> and then I replaced it with Christian facsimiles of the same bands because yeah. as long as the Christian music industry was in charge of my sanctification, I felt like I was doing just fine. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... Someone broke into my car and stole all my Christian CDs. And that's when I went back to listening to everything again. Because I'm like, I can't can't afford to be Christian anymore, man. I can't afford, (laughs) I can't afford to be this sanctified in my music choices. It is too expensive to to build that back up. So doesn't can't that story end with the thief becomes a Christian? Who stole all your Christian CDs? Even if you just lied on that part. That I've would be the best it. ending. <laughs> I've thought about it. Like I've had people, when I tell them that story, they're like, well, what if they became a Christian? I'm like, they probably ended up at the same record hut trying to sell these CDs. <laughs> I'll trade you. I'll trade you this for a Faith No More CD over there. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. No, I, I, I feel the same way. I feel like, um, you know, a lot of making Electric Jesus was a, not a deconstruction for me. I, I've never, I never lost my faith, but it is a reconstruction of faith yeah. and felt uncomfortable in the evangelical Christian subculture I grew up in for various reasons. And the film was a way to kind of address those things. But here's the thing, here's the thing, like, I don't like nostalgia or what I would define as unearned emotion. You hear an old song and you feel all warm and fuzzy. And I think that's cheap. But I think if nostalgia can be a way to redeem the past, like what is it in the past that I want that Phil Collins song to mean? What is the, the past has a clue, maybe. The past has a clue for me now. And it's not just warm, fuzzy, sentimental feelings. It's, there's something about young Chris that is true and is almost speaking to me now. And I want to mine the past for that. And sometimes it could just be remembering something you loved and was, that was important to you and you've forgotten. And it's almost a clue like, yeah, you might want to step back into that. You might want to look at that again. You used to use, read fiction all the time. Maybe you haven't read a book in years. Go read a, you know, it could be something that simple. That starts to have some value for me. But just the, the sentimentality for the past is not, I, I don't know that that's entirely helpful, but the redeeming the past is something very interesting to me. And I hope, I think that's what Electric Jesus ultimately is doing. It's trying to go back to the past and pull the things out. Yeah, there were, there were not good things about that world. And you see them in the movie. There's some kind of insidious not goodness about that culture. I've, I've talked to people that really hit home with them. I talked to people that were in famous Christian bands who watched the movie and said, oh man, we were really guilty of all, you know, looking at it and feeling like cringing, like, oh man, I was there, I did that. Um, I'm not proud of that. 
But if you can go through that and kind of mine that for the things that will be helpful now, I think there can be a lot of value in that. And so I hope the film does that for people. Well, and I like how you talk about nostalgia being unearned emotion. I don't know if I've ever heard it described that way. I, and when it goes to sentimentality, I think when it gets to sweetness, it, it can be that. But I do think it can be powerful if we think of it that way. Like, why am I so drawn to my old Star Wars toys? Why would I want to collect uh, a Ninja Turtle action figure? What does that mean? What is there for me now? And it's not just that I want to fight crime and eat pizza. Um, <laughs> My friends, like there's something there. And well, uh, I want to unpack what that is. And what does it have to teach you? Like, I love how mm -hmm. you say nostalgia is a way to redeem the past. I was recently talking to one of my past guests, Alexander John Shia, and uh -huh. he was quoting the Henri Nouwen book, The Inner Voice of Love. Mm -hmm. And he said, as you conclude this period of renewal, you could choose to believe this as a failed attempt or the start of something. And then he continues, your future depends on how you decide to remember your past. Yeah. Well, there you go. There and you I, go. I mean, I think, yeah, because yes. I, I think that's it, right? Like this, because mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I even caught that when I, I first watched your film, but it did connect me to my past and it did mm -hmm. help me reflect. But like our past doesn't have to be all bad. We can look back and be like, oh yeah, well, there was something good there. And there was something good there that I can bring in to my future. I don't have to just mm -hmm. leave everything. I feel like so many of us, especially in Christian circles, can be re remarkably linear about our understanding of Christian growth and sanctification. We could be oh, like, yeah. this is where I was, but we seem to negate the power of sin in our lives because we don't think that we could do something equally or even more terrible than we've ever done. And that oh, yeah. could be ahead of us. And so I yeah. think it's this more of a like kind of a spiral, like circle kind of approach. Cause yes, I'm that's growing, a, but it's that's the why past I have stay in the past all the time. No, no. I, I mean, that's why I have to go to church every Sunday. It, it, it's not because I'm checking a box. So God's like, okay, he was in church. I need to hear the gospel again. And literally, like, I need to hear that I am forgiven. Yes. That, that Jesus, having come to earth, lived, died, and resurrected as the God-man is why I have grace. That's the best news ever. And I forget it. I forget it. I, Raleigh, I forget it two hours after I walk out of church. 100%. Right? But I got to go back and get it again. And if you don't get that in church, you know, if, if your church is not telling you that on Sunday, go to a church that is telling you that on Sunday, because I can't make it through a week without remembering that. And, and I, I will. Boy, I'll forget it. We are very forgetful people. And it's very easy for us to think that the gospel is just for unbelievers. But mm -hmm. we need it on a daily basis. Oh, totally. And totally. I think we can remind ourselves of it. I think we can go to scripture and read it. But, you know, I am also even forgetful in that. Sometimes my scripture yeah. reading yeah. is not what it should be. Sometimes I didn't hit that app this morning. I got busy. When I go to church every Sunday and there is someone in front of me who says, we're going to confess sin together. Mm -hmm. And then they say, yes, you've, you've sinned, but let's talk about the person who's delivered you. Yeah. And you are forgiven and you are loved. 
and you are being changed even if you don't see it. But here's the beauty. Your worth doesn't depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on your forward momentum. It depends on who Jesus is for you. Well, I'm not a I'm not a theologian. I'm not a a biblical scholar. So, and I am curious about things in the Bible. And I will go down and start reading some story. And I've talked to friends that like get lost somewhere in the Old Testament. They're like, right? I don't know what this means, and this is kind of making me annoyed. And really, God's like this. And what's going on there? I mean, you can there there you can get in a hole. And that's why I need a pastor. There it is, a, a preacher to say the whole book's about the gospel. Okay. Everything that happens is leading to that. And let me help you see how that is. So again, that's why I do need a preacher. And I love what you said. It's not, the gospel isn't just for uh, people who don't know. It is for people who know everything, who know too much. And we know so much, we don't, we forget to know the thing we need to know. And again, my process of making Electric Jesus was a coming back to that. It was investigating, almost interrogating the past, you know, me walking up to that world and going, okay, you guys let me down in a lot of ways. And processing through that and out of that, coming back to a, an understanding of faith that is vital and interesting, fascinating and, and sustaining, especially when you try to make a movie and it's a complete disaster. <laughs> so... Well, and you see in the film flickers of law and gospel mm-hmm. because with the main mm-hmm. character, he's doing all the right things. He's he doing is. what he was told to do, and he is being a good guy. He is making Jesus famous mm-hmm. in his own way. He's trying. He's doing his best to do that. But he, he doesn't know how the law is putting these unhealthy expectations on him. Totally. And how he is just putting those unhealthy expectations on other people. And yeah. then as the film goes on, you're presented with this grace. This, yeah. And it's, it's a grace seen in hindsight, but it's this yeah. grace of, it was never about you in the first place. Yeah. And I love that because you gave people a little life. They don't have to live it. You basically take a snippet of life and you say, we can learn from this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that about the film. It's Well, I don't want to I don't want to unpack the very last scene and no, it's a very no, emotional scene, but I, hey, what that scene kind of does is it's like if you if it's like if you spent your whole story telling some story about some friend of yours from high school and you got a funny story and a, just a character from high school and you've joked about it and it's your favorite story at a bar to tell it's your favorite uh, first date story to tell. Um, you've got the story. And then at some point in your life, you reconnect to that person and you find out the rest of their story. And you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Like I got a tiny, I told this tiniest scene and then I, de- I, I defined them and I understood them fully by that one thing. And here is a fully formed main character protagonist in a story to whom I was just, we used to call them spear carriers in the theater, like the guys that hold the spears by the door in a Shakespeare play. <laughs> You're never saying, what if I'm just, what if I'm just a spear carrier in that person's story? And when that's, there's a kind of humility there. It's a huge well of empathy 
to just, just to realize that oh i'm i'm a supporting character in my children's lives i'm not the lead in the story of harriet white my daughter she is and i can be in her story i can be a really positive force as a supporting or i can be an antagonist right i could be a bad guy too and uh, so again i'm extending that theatrical dramatic writing metaphor here but i think it's i think it's powerful to recognize when we're when maybe we're not the lead we're not the star in what's happening well and chris how do we reach that level of self-awareness how do we recognize which character we are mm. I think maybe by assuming, and this is going to sound like low self-esteem or poor, why don't you just start? But one thing we can do is we can just kind of go into our day and our interaction and our work and assume that maybe I'm, I be like me when I was editing Electric Jesus. I'm going to discover today who the main characters are in this play unfolding in front of me. You walk into the coffee shop, Let the barista be the main character in the story today. You go to the gym. I'm going to let this noisy meathead next to me that's throwing weights out. I'll let him be the star today. You know, I don't know what's going on in his life. So maybe it's a thing that works for those of us who came up in theater and acting and and maybe dramatic writing, whatever. But I think it's a a fair way to kind of just go through your day just deciding I'm going to get, I'm going to be nominated for best supporting actor today not best actor. So maybe that's a way. And also an understanding that, you know, I'm going to mess up all the time. Even if I walk into the, the, the coffee shop in the morning with the barista as the star of the show, if my cortado is not hot enough, then suddenly I am the star and I'm annoyed. <laughs> so I go in and out of it all the time. And I'm not sure that I ever quite will get it totally right. But It's a good thing to be mindful of. So many of us, we're not aware that we assume people's stories without listening to their Mm -hmm. life narratives. And as you approach this, you say, well, I'm going to see this person as the star of the show today. You're deferring to someone else. I think that's incredible because you're taking yourself out of the driver's seat and you're positioning yourself, like you say, as a supporting actor, but also someone who's listening, someone who's there, someone who is present. So Mm -hmm. what do I need to do as a good supporting character? How do I build this person up? How do I encourage this person? It changes your whole orientation on the day. Oh, yeah. And, And any actor will tell you probably the most useful and powerful skill an actor can have, screen actor, stage actor, whatever, is the ability to listen. That is what makes great actors great. When they're not speaking, they're listening to their scene partner. There's a whole school of training in the Sanford Meisner technique, which is based completely on exercises designed to force actors to listen. And uh, you start watching it in TV and movies, or if if you're fortunate enough to be near a live theater, go watch actors do work and put your eyes on the actors when they're not speaking. What are they doing? And great actors will always be listening when they're not speaking. And if you are an actor, you know what I'm talking about. You know when you're listening and when you're just waiting to say your next line. <laughs> I think, I, you know what? 
Raleigh, I think everybody needs to train as an actor. That's just the solution here. I think that's what we have to do. Well, I'm glad that I got <laughs> most improved drama student in ninth grade. <laughs> I feel like I was prepared for this conversation. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. I know yeah. all about that stage. Stuff. Yeah. That's right. That's one of the things I love about the podcast is when I first approached this, I didn't really know how I wanted to approach it, but I listened to this famous podcaster, Jad Abumrad, and he said, the best way to do a podcast is to follow the question. You ask a question, you listen to the answer, you ask another question based on yeah. that. You don't come yeah. with like 15 different questions. Yeah. And I've done that and it's been amazing because I've had people who've been on tons of podcasts and they'll say, I really love this because I feel like you got things out of me that I would have never offered. And you were able to, you got to a deep place. All I did was listen and ask questions and be interested. It's kind of like the, the Fred Rogers approach to relationships. Every time Mr. Rogers interviews anybody, it could be a kid, it could be anyone. He's like really excited and he's curious. Yeah. And what if yeah. we took that to life? Because mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. we're the protagonist mm -hmm. or the antihero, the story's still about us. But when we're the That's supporting right. actor, we want mm -hmm. to make them famous. We want to yeah. <laughs> highlight them, right? Yeah, we want right. to focus on that. Totally. And totally. I, I'm, uh, that's the way I am able to live with, be married to, and work with my wife, Emily, is, is that I, I am convinced she's probably the most brilliant person I've ever met, and not enough people know about that. <laughs> and I think people need to recognize that, and I think she needs to have the success that comes with being somebody as brilliant as she is. <laughs> and I... Again, even when I get frustrated with her, or maybe she's frustrated with me, I just come back to, I'm just such a fan. I'm so impressed. That's been certainly a good way to do a marriage, for sure. But that's also been a good way to be in a creative business. That's helped us in that, is that we both really are impressed with each other and, and want other people to know about it, about this person we married and lived with. <laughs> How would you encourage the listeners to be supporting actors in their own story? The first thing is that, you know, practice the ability to see the narratives and stories happening around you, to actually see a narrative, a plot, a story unfolding. There's plenty of ways to do that, but I, I think part of practicing that is read stories, you know, read, read fiction, read short stories. Learn about how stories are crafted. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. There's a character on a journey and something happens. And so just a general curiosity about narratives so that you know when you're encountering a story and where you are in the flow of that. The ability to recognize that all stories don't have happy endings and all stories don't have sad endings. They're just stories. And we all innately know this is, this is how we explain ourselves to each other. When you're frustrated with your kid, you know, you might start recounting this to your friend and say, I'm so mad at my son. But what follows that statement is a story of what happened and why you're frustrated with your son. So I think practicing seeing that and 
and then and then recognizing my role in it. Am I an uh, an observer, or am I one of the characters in this? And am I pushing this plot forward? Am I holding it back? Am I just along for the ride? But really, you know, because I, you know, maybe that's a little esoteric. The biggest thing is just doing the things that grow empathy in your spirit, in your life. You know, what makes you feel empathetic to other people? Being on social media doesn't do that for me. We spend so much time on social media and that just doesn't, that doesn't ever make me feel. I mean, maybe I pity somebody occasionally, (laughs) but it just makes me either feel jealous or angry or afraid. And those are not pathways to empathy. So probably minimizing some of that. Listen to more podcasts, of course, like this one. But 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 no, but honestly, like a podcast like this, if you if you come away from our conversation and you feel a little bit more curious and empathetic and maybe hopeful in your life, then that was a good way to spend the last hour. But if if the things are making you feel anxious and afraid or I mean, uh, I would try to avoid those things. But ways to build empathy, I mean. Again, just notice, again, next time you're at, I, we keep talking about coffee. I think I need a coffee. Yeah, the next time right. you're at, <laughs> next time you're at the coffee place, yeah. uh, notice how the system's working. Is the boss mad today? Is the barista in a good mood? Are they busy? Are they slow? Just notice it and put yourself into that flow of what's happening there and maybe say a kind word to somebody or better yet, ask a curious question to somebody. It's a great way to learn about the world around you and create empathy. All the very shy, introverted people are like, no, I'm not going to talk to people. Well, you can still pay attention. You can be sensitive. You can notice what's happening in the world around you. Not everybody has to be that. The, the curious, cheerful person asking a question, the barista. But also, look, man, just like with Electric Jesus and me seeing feeling that disaster moment, that failure moment, and it was just heavy. And I was afraid. The small work of going in the next day, getting with Scott, all right, let's start on this scene. Let's just start here. Let's see if we can make this scene good. And a couple of days later, well, we made that scene good. Let's see if we can make another scene good. I think it's very small, tiny, tiny steps a lot of grace, a lot of gospel. If you're a believer, just don't get too urgent and it, it, too worried that you're failing. Just, just keep small steps, little things, make it a little bit better. Take small steps, be interested in the world around you. These things grow empathy. I love how you even talked about social media and you said, you're probably not going to find what you're looking for there. Because at the end of the day, we are distracted by everything. I think everything's distraction, but yeah, but it's in presence. I think I, I've really gone down a journey of trying to learn what does it mean to be present? Because hmm. when I'm present, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. When I'm mm-hmm. present, I'm joyful. When I'm present, mm-hmm. I'm happier. When I'm present, I'm a better friend. Like, because I'm focused on being that supporting character. And I think you've really just encouraged us in such an eloquent way to be where we are and to look for cues and look for clues of 
how we can tap into this greater narrative that's happening around us. We do mm. not have to be the hero to be part of the play. Mm. And I think that's right. That's the gift. And so, Chris, thank you so much for your time today, man. This, is, this has been a great conversation. I love talking to you, Raleigh, and I love the context of, of this and, again, what you're doing with the podcast. So, big fan, big friend. Let's, let's keep conversations going, shall we? If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time. Have mercy on yourselves and each other.